If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans, because that is where we're going to be this morning. We are starting out a new series here, and we're looking at um, the first 15 verses of Romans. Uh, and a lot, um, if you're familiar with this, uh, with this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church, uh, you uh, often start getting, uh, you, you start enjoying Romans, a lot of people think, at, one, at verse 16. And so uh, that, that's one of the big verses that pops out in Romans, is Romans 1.16. And we're going to actually look at that next week, because there's 15 verses before we get to that. And there's a lot in these 15 verses that are really good for us to be able to understand and to see in order to have a better idea of what Paul's doing here. Um, I want to start off by just reading um, the first uh, chunk of these. I think the first eight or nine, the first seven verses. And then we'll just take one break for a second. So this is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can stop right there. Paul takes a while sometimes to get to a period, okay? And this is something that we'll get used to here in Romans. He has a lot to say in each sentence. It's interesting Aram uh, mentioned uh, about how saints is the term that is used to refer to um, all believers. Um, and that when we talk about even a saint's day, we're not just talking about a few extra good people, uh, the best of the best. Uh, the Bible describes a, a believer um, as a saint, and a saint is literally translated to be a sanctuary, a person who is now the dwelling place of God, which is such a perfect way to think in our minds about what it is, maybe the difference between a person who has accepted, received, and responded to the gospel as living um, in God, has become a saint, and someone who is not, someone who now is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and God is a part of them. And Paul's letter is to a group of those people, a group of people in Rome, really all of the people in Rome, anybody in Rome who is a believer who has God dwelling within them. That is who he is writing this letter to. This is the introduction. This is Paul saying, here's who I am, here's what I stand with, and here's who I'm writing this letter to. There's a couple of different things I want to talk about this morning, just in terms of why Paul wrote Romans. 
because it's, a, it's the place that we have to start. What was his purpose in writing this letter to this church? Who was he writing it to? Who was it coming from? And what were the circumstances around it? Now, this is, uh, first and foremost, right here, Paul uh, making his first impression with the church. Paul uh, did not know the people of the church in Rome. He hadn't met them before. He didn't have a relationship with them, which is very different from the other epistles and things that are written in the New Testament by Paul. Paul didn't start this church. Paul didn't have a hand in really starting this church. Paul was actually a bad guy when this church was started, and Paul hasn't made it to visit this church or to see the people of this church yet, as we're going to talk about in a little bit. This is the beginning of Paul's relationship with the church in Rome. This is the first impression. If you've ever applied for a job, you know that there's something that comes before even the best resume. Uh, because the resume is like the, all, all the info about who you are. This is where they look and they get an idea of all the qualifications you have, the experience you have, and everything else. But there's a lot of resumes floating around out there. And if there's a job opening, there's usually more resumes than there are openings for jobs. Maybe not right now, but usually there are. And so there's something that comes before the resume that is intended to get the attention of the person, uh, which is the cover letter, the cover sheet, whatever you want to call that, that thing that you do, the introduction of who you are. There's got to be some way to take your resume and elevated above the other ones. And so people have gotten very creative at trying to find ways to do this. Now, uh, one piece of advice that you'll probably be given by some kind of a career counselor in college at some point is, uh, don't get too creative, okay? Because uh, you can definitely try too hard on this kind of thing and shoot yourself in the foot and have people going, well, this doesn't come across as a person who is highly qualified and passionate. This comes across as a weirdo, somebody who just does things that are weird uh, in there trying to get my attention. I came across a few of these this week. Um, yeah, you're like, oh, oh boy, oh boy, right? Um, I promise we're not going to get off on this rabbit trail too far. So you have a couple different approaches to these. One is the like uh, very confident approach, right? Like you and I both know that I'm the person for the job, okay? I read one. It was an email that a guy sent, uh, and uh, it says... Uh, it's, this guy's name is Benedict, and he's applying to this guy named Doug for a job. And this is the email that he attaches his resume to. Doug, there's a lot of nonsense around about there being no jobs and there being no opportunities. You and me, we know different. Here you are with a sparkling opportunity, and here I am with drive, caring, coming out of my ears. Entrepreneurial spirit to die for, and a full set of bone china white teeth. Let's prove them wrong, Doug. You and me. Sincerely, Benedict. He's confident, you know. He's going for it. I read one from a guy who simply wrote this, I have brave fight to wild bear. I have strong arm lift to wild bear. I am so fast more than train. Sincerely, Thank you for your time and consideration. And then his resume is attached. Probably one of the best ones I read was this. It's an email that a resume was attached to. It said, hello, Carl. Uh, 
I, I may be wrong. I may be young, and if you think that I'm inexperienced, but I do have the passion to be successful and to grow with the company. I want my personal achievements to show on my work with the company. I want to be a trader because of the such strong interest I have for the financial market. I work well under pressure and independently. I know for a fact that I would be a good trader because I have such a high attention to detail and I work well under pressure. Uh, retain strong discipline and assertiveness to all my work. I have great communication skills and people enjoy working with me. I find that very important. I would love to be given the opportunity to come in for an interview. I know that once you meet me and see me, what I can bring to the table, you would see I am perfect for this company in this position. Uh, best regards, Matthew. So Carl emails back. And he says, uh, I agree with you, or he says something about, like, it's okay to not have experience. Um, I, he says that uh, passion beats GPA 99% of the time. Then he goes on and says, could you give me a little bit more detail and context? Quote, add a little more color to, uh, to uh, your, your cover letter, to, to what you've said so far. So this is what he sends back. Now, you can't kind of see it from there. <laughs> But he just changes the sentences to different colors. <laughs> and, it's, and it's all the same stuff. And the guy writes back and he says, can you help give the rationale for the rainbow, is what he says. And then the guy re emails back and he says, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your comment about adding color. And then he said, but once again, I'm very highly motivated. I mean... Just after church, go read some of these. They're great. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've tried really hard to kind of set yourself above um, everyone else, tried really hard to make the first impression, but we do this for a reason. We do this because we know that there's all the facts and the data about us, our background, our history, our qualifications, our skills, the things that we bring to the table in an objective sense, and then there is the first impression that we make. How do you make a good first impression? Uh, the beginning of Romans is Paul seeking very hard to make a good first impression with a church that he doesn't have an existing relationship with, which is unusual at a, for a guy like Paul at a time like this in his ministry career. It's unusual, and you don't see it in what he writes to some of the other letters. That's why Romans has the longest introduction of any of the epistles that Paul writes, because he has a lot to try to say about himself, and he has a lot to try to say to these people who he's writing this letter to. There's a lot of different reasons why Paul writes Romans. Uh, the first reason is this. He is looking to build a relationship with this church. He doesn't have a relationship with them up till this point. You see, the Roman church began on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was uh, um, during the, uh, the, the Passover week, and, or it came after the Passover week. And if you know the story of what happened in the, in the ministry and the end, of ministry, the end of the ministry of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, you know that uh, everyone was coming to Jerusalem at that time. All of the Jews were coming to Jerusalem, the Holy Land, for the Passover, and it was a really big deal. And as Jesus came in, uh, a lot happened that, that one year, uh, you know, the year... Uh, when Jesus was crucified, because as he came into Jerusalem with his disciples, um, and he began to minister publicly, uh, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities arrested him, tried him publicly, and ultimately crucified him. Yet again, there was a false Messiah, someone claiming to be the one who would come and save God's people. After this happened, uh, on the day of Pentecost, we read, 
um, about the birth, basically, of the church. We read about the Holy Spirit coming and giving the ability to the disciples, the apostles, to speak in various languages. And so what happened there in Jerusalem, as all of these Jewish people were gathered, people who had traveled from all around to come to this holy place, that God knew what he was doing, even in here, in this situation, as he had the gospel being proclaimed supernaturally in all of their different languages. And what would happen was that thousands of people would come to faith. And many people would stay in Jerusalem and build a church right there. That's why an offering would be taken. That's why it, would say, it was said that people would, would sell what they have and they would share things with one another because a lot of people chose to stay in Jerusalem to learn and grow in the faith and they needed a way to live and survive. But many people went back to where they were from. A ton of people, Jewish Romans had come from Rome for the Passover, had been converted after hearing this miraculous presentation of the gospel, and then took this back with them to Rome to continue to live as good Jewish people who now knew the good news of the Messiah who had come and who would finally save God's people. They went back to Rome and they started a church. They went back to the synagogues in Rome and they began talking about this in the synagogues amongst the Jewish people. And so the church in Rome was started with people who were converted in Jerusalem right there at the very beginning, before Paul himself even became a Christian. And, uh, and those people went back to Rome and they formed the Roman church. Then eventually what would happen would be, a, well, a bunch of different stuff that we're going to get into as we talk about Romans. But ultimately, this church that would exist in Rome would ultimately come to be a place that actually has fewer Jewish Christians than Gentile Christians. There would actually be more uh, Greek or Gentile Christians, people who come to faith hearing about and believing in Jesus, but didn't grow up in the Jewish church, which is very unique. And so as this church, this, this, this collection of churches and groups of people um, within Rome would grow and grow. It would grow in significance. It would grow in, uh, in its reputation. And yet it was a church that Paul had practically nothing to do with. Paul started all these other churches. He went around helping raise up leaders and helping plant and helping evangelize to and encourage these other churches. That's why when we read about letters that Paul writes in Ephesians, when you read about letters Paul writes to Corinthians, we read very specific things that he's addressing and talking about uh, because he already knows them, or at least they should know him, and he's usually writing to address something specific that's happening within the church. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome simply, first and foremost, because he doesn't have a relationship with them, and he's got to start one now. Now, there's a reason that he's starting this relationship right now, but he's ultimately starting by simply introducing himself, saying, you've heard about me, and I have heard a lot about you. Uh, Paul says this, starting in verse 9. He says, first... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can stop right there for a second. So he's saying to them in this, his introduction to these people in the Roman church, he's saying, I want you guys to know first and foremost that you have a great reputation amongst the other churches out there. I'm not writing to you because there's all these problems. I'm not writing to you because everybody knows that you guys are bad in this one thing. I'm not coming to you because you're in trouble and that's why you're getting a letter from Paul. 
which is why a lot of people got letters from Paul. I am coming to you first and foremost letting you know that I have heard great things about your faith. You have a strong reputation. And what is incredible is what would, how these words that Paul would speak here, what he would write here, would come to be true thousands of years into the future. Because every time we read Romans, every time we see this introduction right here by Paul to the church, what happens? He speaks to the faith of the Roman church. It has continued to be mentioned again and again. As he mentions them in his prayers, it is mentioned every time that we read Romans about how strong the faith was of these people. He says, I've heard of you. I pray without ceasing for you. And there's a reason why he sort of goes over the top, it seems, to communicate how much he appreciates them. And it's because the elephant in the room here is this. Paul hasn't come to see them yet. And all the time that they've existed and all the time he's been doing his ministry, Paul, why haven't you come to Rome? Rome's a big deal. Paul's a big deal. Why are we just now hearing from Paul? Why are we not yet been able to see Paul? Because usually Paul didn't start out with a letter. He knew that people don't care about letters they get from people they don't know. You ever get one of those letters in the mail, like, like junk mail, and they get really, they're getting really good at it now? They make it look like someone wrote you a real letter, and you're like, oh, a letter? Unbelievable! And you get all excited. Who gets letters, right? Like, I mean, some of you still get lots of letters, but some people still don't get very many letters. And you see a letter and somebody wrote on it with their hand and you open it up and you're like, oh, fooled me, fool me once, you know, fool me twice. I've been fooled more than twice by these letters, right? But you get a letter from somebody you don't know and you throw it away. You disregard it because it has to start with some kind of a relationship. And the problem is that Paul doesn't have that with them. He hasn't actually come to meet the people of the church yet. He says to them, though, that uh, it's not because I don't like you. It's not because you have a bad reputation. He says, in fact, um, somehow by God's will, one of his prayers is that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's saying to them, I'm coming. I want to come visit you. I'm going to come see you guys. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So what he's saying to them is he's saying, I want to come see you. He actually will go on and he will say, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. So Paul's words to them are this, guys, I know I haven't come, right? How awkward is it when you have to have the conversation with the person that you haven't talked to and you're in trouble now, right? Like, uh, you never called them and you were supposed to. You never visited them and you were supposed to, right? You've let too much time pass, and now it feels like the most meaningless words that you could say to them are, I, I really wanted to, right? I fully intended to. I completely planned on seeing you were doing this thing, right? I mean, come on, right? Like, if you have to say it, you hear yourself saying it, you go, I shouldn't be saying this. It's not going to make them feel any better. In fact, it's probably just going to remind them that, you know, I wasn't there to begin with. I didn't see them to begin with. It seems sort of like the elephant in the room here with Paul and the Roman church in the beginning of this letter is this. Paul, why the heck haven't you come to visit us yet? What's your good reason? And so he says, he says to them, I have been prevented. 
So he's writing this letter to the Roman church first to introduce himself to them and just say, we got to start a relationship, and I'd rather start it from a letter than not start it at all. But the other reason is because he hasn't yet been able to come see them. He needs to see them, and he has been prevented in doing so. He's saying to them, listen, my, I'm not out here on vacation, right? I wanted to come and see you and visit you, but God himself has prevented me from doing so because of the work that I have in the gospel. That's a pretty good reason. That's, that's, that's an okay reason. We, we hear that. The church should hear that and go, okay, Paul, all right, that's good. We'll let that go. We'll let you go on that one. The other reason why he's writing this to them is because he is intending to go to the church in Jerusalem, and what we'll see is that he needs to raise money for that church. So how awkward is this, right? I haven't seen you. I know you wish I had. You probably maybe even took that the wrong way. Also, um, I need to ask for money, right? Now imagine somebody that you haven't seen in way too long, right? You're all, we can all think about family here maybe. You haven't seen them in way too long. And on top of that, you're like, okay, I need some money, right? All right, I got to really think about the long game here, okay? I've got to really think about how to, how to do this the right way. You can't just show up or call. They'll be like, hi, hope things are going well. Sorry I missed the last few Mother's Day. Anyway, need money, you know? But what we'll see through Romans is that Paul, his, one of his jobs is to collect from churches to support other churches. Now, this church in Rome cares about the church of Jerusalem. They were started by them. They were there, uh, in, the forefathers of this church were there in Pentecost, were there um, on the Passover, were there in Jerusalem. And so they would care about this church. But Paul knows, man, I got to raise money from these people. How do I do that? What do I do, right? I've got to get a relationship going with these people who might resent a little bit the fact that we don't have one already, feel like they're the lowest on my priorities, on my list of priorities. I've got to raise money from these people. And then there's another reason why he writes this, and this is going to come up through our Romans that we're going to see, and it's this. This is a little bit more Paul. This is something we're a little bit more familiar with, especially after the last few weeks. He wants to bring unity to this group of people because the truth is, surprise, surprise, Unity is always kind of an issue in the church. Even a church like Romans, even a church uh, like, like the Roman church in Rome, a church that has a faith that he proclaims that everyone knows is good, uh, people admire them and look up to them, and, and, and good things are said about them, even this church struggles with division. Why? Because this church is comprised of two very different groups of people the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians. They would get in debates over the law. At what point should the law still be a part of our life as Christians? This is not that different from people who have grown up in a Christian tradition and people who are brand new to the Christian tradition. People who have all these things that have been a part of what it means to be a Christian, the lifestyle of a Christian, the culture of a Christian, who say, aren't these things valuable? And then the people who come in and are like, not really, not to me, just show me where it says it in the Bible and I'll do it. And like, well, it's a little bit more than that, it's a little more complicated than that got to understand all the context and everything else. And what you find is two very different groups of people trying to worship God and have unity and often getting in debates over the law. Most scholars would agree that the churches in Rome were separated. 
there were Jewish churches, house churches, and there were Gentile house churches. These were not groups of people that mixed well together. Paul knew this. This was probably also something else that was a part of their reputation. And so on top of having to build a relationship with people who might have felt a little ignored, on top of having to raise money from those people, Paul also wants to unify these people. So what do you do when you are a guy looking at all of those things that you need to do? That's a pretty tall order. You've got a lot of hard things you have to try to accomplish in this letter to this group of people. Some would say, maybe don't try to do that in a letter, Paul. Well, he's Paul, right? Plus, that's how he has to do it. When this is what you're staring down and these are the things that have to happen, what Paul does is he says, the way I'm going to bring unity to these people the way that I'm going to begin this relationship on the right foot with these people and the way I am going to begin laying the foundation of raising support from these people is this. Paul will write the greatest treatise on the gospel that has ever been written. He will write his magnum opus. I keep having that word come to my mind, even that's like the weirdest phrase, right? But we all know what that means, right? This is what it is when a person sits down and actually writes their grand achievement. They put to paper, they put together their grand achievement, the thing that is their thing above all other things. If C.S. Lewis has mere Christianity, if John Piper has desiring God, if Dietrich Bonhoeffer has the cost of discipleship, if, 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 Rick Warren has the purpose-driven life. If Francis Chan has crazy love. If J.I. Packer has knowing God. If John Bunyan has the pilgrim's progress. These, these guys all wrote other books. There were lots of other books. But we know these as the thing that they wrote that was their thing. Paul's thing is Romans. Of all the letters and all the other things that he would write to churches... Romans is Paul sitting down and saying, I am going to really enjoy giving people the single greatest explanation for defense of an application of the gospel that I possibly can. This is what Paul does in Romans. This is why he does it. Nothing can accomplish all these things that Paul wants to accomplish more than the gospel. How many leaders would choose to go another direction in trying to accomplish all these things? More practical directions. Things that are not quite like the gospel. And yet Paul says the way this is going to happen is I'm going to show you all the beauty, the depth, the application of the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins and that God is restoring humanity through that. This is why Paul wrote Romans. There is nothing that will unite a divided group of people who love Jesus like the power of the gospel. There is nothing who will show these people exactly who Paul is like the power of the gospel. There is nothing that will stir in these people their recognition of the need to support what God is doing in these churches than the power of the gospel. So he says to them this, so after all of what he has said, after his super long, here's who I am, here's what I've heard about you, he says this, 
to a church that sounds like the the most knowledgeable, mature, best church that Paul's written to, he says this, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Does that seem a little bit weird? That of all the things, though, that Paul could talk to them about, it would be something that they already know, right? When we think of preaching the gospel, when we think of someone like Paul preaching the gospel at this time in the history of humanity, we think of Paul bringing the message of the gospel to people who have never heard it before. But what does Paul want to do? He wants to sit with a group of people who have heard it, who have responded to it, and are a part of a church that is living in light of it. And he says, I am so eager to talk to you about the good news of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. This is what he believes will build them up more than anything. Last week, we talked about the key to unity being this. We keep the main thing the main thing. And then we recognize that all the other things are still important. But the main thing is the main thing. Paul practices what he preaches in what he preaches. Because Paul sees that the main thing of the gospel must continue to be the thing that he shares with these churches. Even the churches who know so much and have experienced so much. Jesus has come and he has saved me. He has given me new life in God, and that means that I am no longer condemned to death. This is the good news of the gospel. Now what? Okay, I believe it. I put my faith in it. Maybe I get baptized. I profess it. I become a part of a church. Now what? What do I do when these things that are still affecting me in the world, by living in the flesh, life is hard, I'm tempted to sin, there is this thing, the struggle of human life, of what it is to still be here now. Now what am I supposed to do with all of the things that I'm up against in my life? Now that the gospel has changed me, now that I'm saved, what do I do? Now that I have Jesus, do I just... Do I fight these things? Do I fight these problems and these urges and these temptations and these struggles? Do I fight them and power through them? Because I have Jesus, I'm one of the people who cares about doing the right thing. Because isn't that how it works? The people who have the gospel are the people that care about doing the right thing. And the people who don't have the gospel are obviously the people who don't care about doing the right thing. That's why they don't have the gospel, right? The religious people care about doing the right thing and being good. The non-religious people don't care about the right thing or being good. So yeah, now that I have the gospel, now that I'm that person, then with all these things that come up in life, all this stuff that are happening all around us, I'm supposed to be the person who tries the hardest to do the right thing. Doesn't that seem like the natural next step? Do I show my love for God by becoming more and more holy by working harder and through the effort that I put in showing the world that I'm more mature, showing God that I am more mature, and maybe even a little bonus that I don't need him quite so much because doesn't he really want a bunch of, does he really want a bunch of people who just need him so much? Or do I go the other way now that I have the gospel and I have Jesus in my life? Do I go, uh, you know, now I just take it easy, right? I mean, grace, grace, right? Grace, right? I'm not going to be, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm not going to be, uh, uh, prove anything to God that's right enough. In fact, man, when I look at what Jesus has done for me and what he's done for the world, then you know what that means? That means, um, 
That means I'm fine, right? I mean, God doesn't want me to sweat these things about some of the choices I make in my life, about the way that I am with other people, about the way that I interact with the rest of this world. When I look at my money, do I sacrifice all of my money because as a Christian, that's what God expects? Or do I spend it just however I want, freely, as my own money? Because grace means I don't need to worry so much about living a certain way. I have nothing to prove, right? Which one is it? My love life. Now that I have Jesus in my life, now that my body's a living temple, what do I do when I lust, what do I do when I'm in a relationship with somebody? We can't keep our hands off each other. Do I get rid of my computer and my phone and anything else that will ever cause me to struggle? Literally throw all that stuff out the window? Do I kiss dating goodbye? Do I, do I, do I say, now I'm the person who is supposed to actually uh, do the best job of staying away from these things? Or do I go the other way? And do I say, no, I relax and I say, Jesus paid it all. Thanks to the grace of God, I know that he doesn't care about the things I do with my body. I'm not perfect, right? I'm just forgiven. Which way do we go with these things? What does it look like to live in light of the gospel itself? The gospel speaks to all of these things. It speaks to all of the different things that are going on in our lives and the stuff that we're facing. The gospel is the good news of how I can experience righteousness without the legalism of doing it myself and without the hedonism of saying, I'm just here to enjoy it and it doesn't matter what I do. I was talking with someone last week and we were uh, talking after church and they were kind of saying like, you know, uh, that, 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 that phrase, the gospel, I mean, uh, you know, what do we mean, you know, when we say that? I mean, when we say that, are we, are we saying, like, 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 is it just two words? Is it just five words? Is it three points? Is it a whole paragraph? Is it, according to Paul, it's like a whole, a whole book that we're about to spend forever studying, right? What is this thing, the gospel, when we talk about it? I'm going to put it up here, and I'm going to make it as clear as I can so that we know that we're all talking about the same thing. This is what we mean when we say the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into a right relationship with him and eventually to destroy all the results of sin in the world. This is what we mean when we say the gospel. Now, there's the short way to say it with two words, Jesus saves and that's the gospel. That is the answer. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We're a mess. Good news is Jesus saves. Bad news is it's because we're such a mess. This is a little bit more thorough, though. A little bit more specific. The good news that God has accomplished my salvation for me through Christ in order to bring me into a right relationship with him. He did it so I could be in a relationship with him. But it goes beyond that because eventually the good news also tells us that he is going to destroy all the results of sin in the world. All the suffering, all the pain. That ultimately the gospel has given a way for God to be able to do that thing. You see, 
our tendency will always be to go one way or the other, even after encountering and believing in the gospel for the first time and becoming a Christian. Our tendency will be, like the two sons and the prodigal son, to either be the one who says, you know what, it doesn't matter anymore, I'm going to do what I want, and we, we, we live freely however we want, however we can, thinking that this is not something that God cares about, or uh, we do what the older brother does. Or we are pulled back to this, but I slaved for you. I worked hard for you. I did all of these things for you. I was the one who cared about doing the right thing. We will continue to be pulled in one of two directions, even after encountering the gospel, as long as we live in the flesh. And if we do not go back to the gospel often, we will continue to go in one of those two directions. There is licentiousness, which is basically we give ourselves license to do whatever, saying that even after the gospel, grace is the reason why God doesn't care. Or there's legalism. There is, there is the arrogance and the pride of believing that we actually are going to become better through our own effort and that that's what it looks like to live as a Christian for a long time. And there is this good news called the gospel, which says to us in every situation and at every time in our life, no matter what is happening, Jesus was the one who saved you, and he is the one who saved you. I cannot tell you how many times that people have had to bring me to places and point out to me in my life, remind me of the simple truth. It's usually in just the right moments when I'm so worked up on how much I'm failing at something or I'm so worked up at how arrogantly, pridefully proud I am of something that somebody is able to at the right moment in the right way with the right amount of gentleness and truth remind me, isn't it good news that Jesus saves you and not that? Isn't it good news that despite the failure, you weren't saved by that and you won't be tomorrow either? Isn't it good news that with all these things that you seem so proud of, that that stuff doesn't save you at all and that it won't tomorrow or the next day? We need the gospel. And the gospel, there's a lot to it, the good news of it. And so we go back to it again and again and again. And one of the, one of the most difficult things for people is that it seems... Uh, to some, to be boring. I'll never forget a, a time that I was a part of a church that did a series on the gospel, and every week we shared the gospel. There were testimonies from people and shared the gospel. And I remember I was a youth pastor at the time, and there was a youth volunteer that I was working with, and we were at an event, and we were at like a miniature golf course. That's where I spent all my time for a few years. And um, I'm, I'm bad at it. I didn't, I didn't get any better. And, uh, you know, maybe if you ever want to know what it's like to need, you know, Jesus, just go miniature golfing or bowling or something, because you'll feel bad about yourself. I don't know. And I was there, and I remember this one person, and they, they seemed to forget for a moment that I was a pastor at the church and just started griping. And they said, you know, man, when are we going to get off, off of the series that we're on and actually start talking about something interesting? And uh, they said, it's just the same thing again and again, week after week. I told my husband, I said, can we just skip church this week? Because I'm getting tired of hearing it. I get it. This is a longtime church member, and we were talking about the gospel. Now, maybe they would have been like, well, you guys should have done a better job. You should have been more interesting. I don't know. But what I could tell in talking to this person, who I would say definitely had quite a bit of self-righteousness, was that to them... We needed to get beyond this thing and start talking about better, deeper, more practical, more profound things. Could you imagine if Paul's uh, uh, magnum opus was like, 
Living Life Well by Paul, right? How many copies would that have sold? That would have sold a lot of copies, right? Or like, uh, you know, uh, Let Go and Let God by Paul, right? That would have sold a lot of copies too, right? There's a lot of things that we want someone like Paul to go into great detail about and to tell us about because we don't want to have to sit and think about the gospel again and again and again. But what Paul chooses to spend this time on and this effort on for this group of people is this good news. We are good at leaving things at you must believe and live right to be saved or God loves and accepts everyone just as they are. And the gospel tells us again and again that that is not the truth. So as we spend this time in Romans, we spend this time doing what the church in Rome did. We spend this time looking again and again in the most comprehensive and practical way that you possibly can at what it really means when we talk about the gospel. Paul gives the greatest argument for why we need the gospel. Every single person needs it. Why our whole world needs the gospel. And then what it looks like when the gospel is lived out in our lives. This is the most relevant thing that we could possibly talk about. It is the most unifying thing that we could possibly talk about. But the challenge is this. Will we still allow ourselves to be shaped by the good news of the gospel today? I was talking to someone recently about how we live in a time in which we have access to more information than ever before. I know, newsflash, right? I mean, we kind of have, have access to all the information, right? We have access to all of the information now. And not only do we just have the ability to look it up online whenever we want, but the news isn't just a thing that's on for an hour at night anymore. It's on all the time. It's on constantly on our phones. We are bombarded with an overwhelming amount of data and information. And if you want to learn about anything, you can go learn about a thing, right? I mean, we've all used the word research at least once in the last few months. Why? Because we're all researchers now. We all have the ability to be that. It's called Google, right? I was once in a car with a group of people, and we lost reception for like an hour. And after the hour was up, we had to look up like five things that came up in one hour. That it was like, I don't, I don't, why are those balls on the telephone lines when you drive by? What is that for? I don't know. Well, I got to look. Oh, no, 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 we don't know. Drove us crazy. I mean, it makes raising kids super easy, except then they demand, like, YouTube videos of all things, right? Like, so when I'm, like, putting my son to bed, and he's like, Dad, uh, what started World War II? And I'm like, that's really complicated. And then I'm like, don't worry. And then, and then one day, I'm putting my son to bed, and he says, Dad, what's a concentration camp? And I'm like, uh, and he's like, can you just show me a picture of one or something? I'm like, no, not really, not right now, you know? 
He knows that I have the ability to do that now. We live in a time where we literally have access to everything. But I don't know that we've ever lived in a time when people are so completely confident that we know everything. Not because of all the data or the information. In fact, it seems like all the data and the information. Have you ever wanted somebody in your life to believe something different than what they believe? Have you ever felt like it didn't matter how much you told them or shared with them or sent them because their mind was made up? You see, what we have is not just unequaled access to information, but we lack curiosity and we lack humility. We lack the humility of being aware of how much is out there that we don't know, and we lack the curiosity of wanting to know it. If we can approach this book of the Bible with curiosity about what God has to show us, and with humility, asking for God to shape our hearts with it, then our lives will be profoundly changed. I can tell you that that probably one of the greatest struggles of the American church right now is not that the preaching isn't good enough. You're like, yeah, well, that's you saying it, you know. It's not that the preaching isn't good enough. It isn't that we haven't found just enough ways to make it easy for people to be a part of. It is that uh, we aren't being shaped by worship, by the Word of God, by community. We're not approaching these things with the kind of humility and curiosity that leads to real transformation and life change. We're approaching these things most of the time as ones who are already experts in them and familiar with them. I'm excited that we get to take this time going through something that will, dig, that will dive deeply into the beauty that is the gospel, but this is not an intellectual endeavor. This is not a study. This is us asking God to shape our hearts and our lives by the gospel in a profound way. If you will ask that of God, if you will Ask God, pray for the ability to be humble and to be curious as you approach his word. I believe that his word will completely, can completely change and transform your life. Even if you feel that his word already has completely changed and transformed your life. I love the word of God. I love it. It never gets old. It never becomes unrelatable. In fact, the more that, we live, more that I live my life, the more I go, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible. And the more that I find myself going to the Word of God being like, I didn't know that was in there and I didn't realize that was in there. And I promise it's not just because I didn't pay attention when I was supposed to. It is truly a supernatural thing. It is the ultimate truth. It is the ultimate source of knowledge. It is something that can change us profoundly. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would be shaped by the gospel, by the good news of what Jesus has done for us, how much it saves us, how much we need it, and the all really good news of the fact that you intend to restore all of creation through it, God. God, we confess to you that we, don't, that we often do not exhibit a spirit of humility. We often do not ex- exhibit a spirit of curiosity, Lord. I'll never forget the day when I was 19 and I told my pastor, I now have read the Bible and know everything. What's next?
Father, um, our prayer is that you would shape our hearts and our lives and help us to fall in love with the truth of the good news of the gospel. God, if there is anyone here this morning who has hearing this phrase and hearing these words and hearing this good news and has yet to respond to this thing, Lord, has yet to ever actually take a step of faith and say, I put my trust in Jesus and not myself, Lord. Father, I pray that this would be the moment that that would happen. If you're here today and if you are hearing us talk about these things and you're hearing this news of Jesus and you're going, I didn't know that before or I've heard it, but I've never really actually thought that it was something that I needed to respond to. Would you just now make the single most important decision that you will ever make in your life and pray this prayer with me? Father, I recognize that I am broken and that this world is a broken place, and that there is nothing that I can do that will make me good enough for you, but that you do care about me being good enough for you. God, I accept that Jesus has paid the price for my sins. I ask for your forgiveness, and I intend to walk with you from this day forward every single day for the rest of my life in the power of his grace and the gospel, Father. I need Jesus to save me. I cannot save myself. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.